0: Well, this is the week of the Thanksgiving holiday, which means it's the time of year when our culture <clears throat> gives a token tribute to the idea of being thankful. And as usual, as Christians, we're going to notice something when the world talks about this. The world does not have an adequate understanding of what the right object of Thanksgiving is. In other words, they they tend to speak in just general terms of of being thankful, but as believers, we think differently about it, and because of that, we're glad to seize this opportunity on the calendar to remind ourselves what is to be in our hearts every day, and as well, we are seizing the opportunity to focus, therefore, on the ultimate object of our thankfulness, and we know that that is, of course, the Lord that is true thanksgiving. It is being thankful to God. Now, in our normal study on Sunday mornings, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we're going to be coming up soon to verse 18. And verse 18 of 1 Thessalonians 5 touches on this topic of thanksgiving. It says, "...in everything give thanks." for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So when we're trying to determine God's will for our lives, this is one place we should start. We know it's His will, that we are thankful to the Lord in everything it says. So yes, we don't mind at all taking this national holiday and sanctifying it, if you will, to focus on what then is to be the habit of our lives, giving thanks to God as 1 Thessalonians 5 says, in everything. But our actual passage of study today is not 1 Thessalonians 5, it is Psalm 138, Psalm 138. We will be returning to 1 Thessalonians in the near future, but today, join me there, Psalm 138, it is the first of a group of eight Psalms that are all written by David, at least ascribed to David as being the author and uh, they are as well the last of David's psalms in what we call the Psalter, God's uh, hymn book that He's given to us, the Psalter. Now, in these eight psalms, we end up finding what are typical themes for David when he writes. There certainly are uh, laments that he puts into those psalms, uh, lamenting over the challenges that he was facing. Even more specifically, uh, we find Along the way, when he writes, that he's keenly aware that he has enemies out to get him. And he touches on that here. There is a note of that here. There there at least seems to be the awareness in the background that he has that on his mind, that he has enemies. And what's typical for him is to seek divine help. That is found in these last eight Psalms as well. So, as is typical for David, we find expressions of worship, we find expressions of praise, and we find expressions of thanksgiving to God. Now we don't know the exact timing or the setting of when David wrote this Psalm. There seems to be an enemy that he has on his mind and it could be his own son, Absalom. Absalom, as you know, rebelled against his father, the king, and even began to steal the hearts of the people of the nation away from David, stealing the throne away from David, forcing David to flee for his life. Absalom, his own son, was trying to kill him. That's a bit of a dysfunctional family, I would say. Regardless, David kept in mind something throughout his difficulties. He kept in mind a promise that God had given to him. It's found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, what we call the Davidic covenant. It's a promise that God made to David of a kingdom. There would be a kingdom of his, of David's, that would endure, regardless of what else was going on. There would be a kingdom who would even come to be reigned by a future king who would be one of his descendants, the Messiah. So, no doubt that promise gave him encouragement. The awareness of that promise, regardless of what the enemies were doing, helped him, prompted him to be thankful to the Lord in his heart. Something else to note before we begin our study you may have a version, there's at least one version that in verses 1 and 2 and 4, instead of saying, I will give thanks, it says, I will praise or I will give praise. The Hebrew term, though, can be translated, I will give thanks. And in this psalm, that is the more precise way to translate it because this is a thanksgiving psalm, so it's appropriate for us to study it today. Now, we can divide Psalm 138 into three sections, and each one of these sections are expressing something about God, some truth about God, some blessing from God that the psalmist was thankful for. So we're going to outline our study that way, and we're going to seek to make it personal to us as well. So let's note three blessings from the Lord for which we need to be thankful. Three blessings from the Lord for which we are thankful. Here's the first one. Number one, we are thankful for God's faithfulness, His faithfulness. We just sang about that. Now, in the opening verses, the psalmist begins this section by expressing what was the uh, disposition of his heart. This was the bent or the propensity of his heart, this inner compulsion to worship the Lord. He says, I will give thanks to you with all my heart. This was what was inside David. Again, keep in mind that the psalm was written in the context of David facing trouble, very possibly an enemy out to get him. But again, this is typical for David to be in deep trouble on one hand, his life threatened, not knowing what the future holds for him. And yet, in the midst of all that, praising God and thanking God. And yet, typically, it's in those kinds of times that people don't think about giving God thanks, giving Him glory, because their world is caving in in some way. It doesn't mean they don't pray. They likely do petition God. They besiege the throne of God. They overwhelm the throne of God sometimes with request because of their difficulty, but to actually praise God, to thank God in the midst of that? It's sad that when things go wrong, there are many people who even forsake God, doubt God, accuse God of wrongdoing. But we should be thankful to him, just as David was. He goes on in verse 1, I will sing praises to you before the gods. Now, the Hebrew term translated gods there is the Hebrew term Elohim. And so, when we hear that, it's a plural Hebrew word. When we hear Elohim, we think of one thing. Well, that's That's one of the names of God. That's a name that God used for himself. It's used many times in the Old Testament, but it can also be translated other ways. It can be translated angels. It can be translated judges or rulers or kings, even gods, false gods with a little g. Here in our text, I believe it's a combination of that thing, that idea of kings or rulers and false gods. It's referring to the rulers of pagan nations and the false pagan gods that they worship. Now, we can find it used that way even in the Psalter. For example, Psalm 95 verse 3 comes to mind. Psalm 95 verse 3 says, For the Lord, Yahweh, is a great God... And there is the shortened form L for God, E L, and a great king above all gods, little g, and there it's Elohim for gods. So the point is this Yahweh, the true God's power, was greater than all the various pagan nations, their rulers, their false gods. And David is proclaiming that greatness. In fact, he loved to proclaim the exalted, majestic greatness of God in the presence of rulers of other nations who worship false gods. You could say it this way. He loved to proclaim the greatness of God in their face. That was his disposition to worship and praise God. And that disposition continues in verse 2. I will bow down toward your holy temple. It's not exactly clear what David meant by temple. The temple in Jerusalem is what we normally think of, but it was not built by this time. This word can also refer to the tabernacle. Or David may very well have had the heavenly temple where God dwells on his mind. But the location here is not the main point. The word bow down is the main idea here. It means to, in humility, to literally make oneself low to the ground because that is a posture that conveys the idea of worship. So you see two sides of the psalmist here. We see his boldness. He loves to acknowledge the greatness of God in the face of pagan rulers and nations and false gods. And yet, when it comes to the real God, we see his humility and bowing down before him. But he goes on because in this humility, he expresses something more specific about his worship and what he was praising God and thanking God for. He's praising and thanking God for who God is and how God expresses that identity to his people. Look at the rest of verse 2. And I give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth. David directed his thankfulness, he says, to God's name. In the Old Testament especially, the name was a common designation for who someone really is, their their character, their nature. So here, David had in mind the nature of the Lord, that is, who God really is. And so I give thanks to your name, I give thanks to your name because your name represents who you are, so I give thanks thanks and praise to you. I do want to take just a moment, though, to talk about this idea of how God's name summarizes who He is, and we'll we'll do that by very briefly reviewing some of His biblical names. For example, Elohim, I've already mentioned. It can be translated judges and rulers and false gods and so forth, but it is a recurring name for God in Scripture used many, many times It's the one that conjures up the reality that He's the omniscient God, the omnipresent God, the uh, um, omnipotent God who is the creator of all things. He's the sustainer of all things in the universe. Just think about it. Every single molecule in every galaxy, God is the creator of that, Elohim. That name points to that, and that's why it's used in the very first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God, Elohim. In the beginning, Elohim did what? Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Of course, there's Yahweh. Many times it's spoken as Yehovah or Jehovah. It's Yahweh. That is a very personal name of God. It's used around 6,000 times in the Old Testament. It's the I am of the Old Testament. It's the name that prompts thoughts about his timelessness, no beginning, no end. And it's the name that he used specifically to spell out his covenant relationship with his nation, chosen nation Israel In English translations, when it's Yahweh, it's usually translated Lord in all capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, except in one translation, one of the newer translations, the Legacy Study Bible, which I uh, recommend to you. I enjoy reading that just in my daily time. The Legacy Study Bible uses Yahweh when it occurs. Another name is Adonai. You'll find that translated Lord, but not in all caps. Capital L, but a little O-R-D. That lets you know that in the Hebrew it was Adonai. That's the name that says that God is the supreme ruler of all things. He is the Lord of all things. He is sovereign over all things, and therefore all things, all being, all things must submit to Him, must obey Him. And then there are several combination names that are put with Yahweh, or we can say Jehovah, And these terms have various pronunciations because there's different Hebrew forms for them, but perhaps you've heard of some of these. Jehovah Jireh, the one who provides for us. The Lord is the provider. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord our peace. Jehovah Rofika or Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who is the healer, the one who heals. Jehovah Sidkenu comes from a word for righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there. Jehovah Nisi, the Lord, our banner. Jehovah Makadishkim, the Lord who sanctifies. Each one of these biblical names, and all of them together, we could say, are God's name. And we know what he thinks about his name. He jealously guards his name. He does not permit lowly human beings to take his name in vain. So back to our verse. David praised and thanked God for all that that name represents. But in this verse, he gets even more specific because there's two summary aspects of God's name, God's identity that David was especially thankful for. Because these have to do with how God relates to his people. These two attributes, his loving kindness, he says, and his truth. So let's look at those. David is thanking God for his loving kindness. That's that Hebrew word, hesed. It means his covenant love that he has for his people it means his loyal love he is loyal to his people and therefore it's a word that confirms that God is always good to his people not just sometimes but always good he's always gracious to his people david was thankful for that and he thanked god for his truth and here it remains it refers to the trueness of his character he's true to himself And therefore, since he's completely true to his character, he is faithful in every way. So together, you could translate them, loyal, faithful love, that's what he was thankful for, or if you just want a word, faithfulness, faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. All God's thoughts flow toward us. Out of his love, and they persist in faithfulness. All of his actions are like that. And again, just said differently God is good, and he's always good. Therefore, David wanted to thank God for that, for his goodness. He wanted to thank God for his covenant love. He wanted to thank God for his faithfulness. Now, the last part of verse 2 is actually difficult. This translation says, for you have magnified your word according to all your name. More literally, it reads like this. Listen, you have magnified over all your name, your word. Now, the ESV, you may have that. It puts it this way. You've exalted above all things your name and your word, and that's a good translation of it. You've exalted above all things your name and your word. The Legacy Study Bible, similar to the NAS, you've magnified your word according to all your name. King James, New King James, you've magnified your word above all your name, but because of the literal understanding of it, it is that idea you've exalted above all things your name and your word. The point is this. God's name is definitely highly exalted, we know that, yet He's exalted His Word to the same level of dignity and honor as His name. So to exalt God is to exalt His Word. To exalt His Word is to exalt God. The two cannot be separated. So I do like a translation like this, you've magnified your name and your Word above all else. It ends up making his name and his word equal. All that he is that is represented in his name is what is revealed in his word. That's where we find the blessing that God is faithful, that God is a loving God and a good God. God, we find that in his word. But David's not just writing about this and thinking about this because he went to the Expositor Seminary. I mean, he may have, but... Because he's very good, he's a very good writer and good knowledgeable, like all of our students. He is thinking about it in personal terms. He personally experienced the blessing of God's faithfulness. So he adds this in verse 3 On the day I called, you answered me. You made me bold with strength in my soul. Now we know from his writings that he was in a lot of trouble, but he prayed a lot. In all the different challenges he faced, when enemies were against him, he prayed regularly. So God answered all those prayers, right? And God removed him from every one of those trials, every one of those difficulties, stopped every enemy. No, it wasn't always by removing the problem. In many cases, the challenge remained. The enemy was still out there after David, but God, he says, was faithful to do something. He always strengthened David in his soul, he says. And God is still faithful to do that in us today. There's no doubt about it. God allows things to happen to us, brings things in our lives that are the opportunity to do something in our souls. It's opportunity for him to give us what we need in order to live with the problem, which ends us making ends up making us stronger afterwards than we were before. That's something he does in our soul. Can't help but think of a New Testament example of that. The Apostle Paul experienced the same kind of help. In 2 Corinthians 12, he writes about this problem he faced called a thorn, A thorn in his flesh. People have tried to say it's different things, but if you just take the language that he uses and how it's used elsewhere, the thorn was likely an individual in his life. Someone motivated and empowered by Satan to cause Paul much grief in his life. It was Paul's habit, just like David's, to pray. And he says there in 2 Corinthians 12 that on three separate occasions, he prayed that God would would remove this problem out of his life. And Scripture goes on to tell us there, as Paul writes about it, that in all three of those occasions, God's answer back to David, Paul, was no. Instead, God said Paul to something like this, I'm going to give you grace in the midst of this problem. And thus, I'm going to enable you, because of what I do in your soul, I'm going to enable you to live with this thing for my glory. And Paul realized the significance of that strengthening in his soul by God's grace. And therefore, he wrote this at the end of that little story, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10, therefore, because God strengthened him in his soul, therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, insults, distresses, persecutions, difficulties, five words that summarize any kind of trial you could ever have, I'm content in any one of those for Christ's sake because I've learned that when I'm weak in those things, that's when I'm actually strong. Strong how? In his soul. You know, Paul wrote, that in 2 Corinthians, but he also wrote something else in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. And it looks to me like he was experiencing in 2 Corinthians what he wrote about in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation, no trial, no testing has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, other people are going through things, similar things. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted, tested beyond what you're able. There's a governor that he puts on your trials. But with that temptation or that testing will provide the way of escape, praise God. Yeah, but the verse goes on, has a comma. Provide the way of escape, and here's how he defines escape, so that you will be able to endure it. What he's saying is, God will give you strength in your soul so that you escape from the problem that way, from the burden of the problem, the anxiety of the problem, so that you're able to endure it. God was faithful to Paul like that during his trials. And back to our text, that had been David's experience as well. God had repeatedly displayed his steadfast, enduring love to him Over and over again, David saw that God was a faithful God, and so he was thankful for that. And we too should be thankful for everything that God is, everything that His name represents, and how He relates to us through His goodness, through His faithfulness to us. And we learn all about that in His Word as well, and we're thankful for that. But all that... The blessing of God's faithfulness is connected to this second companion blessing that prompts our thankfulness. Number two, thankful for God's condescension. Thankful for God's condescension. I hope I spelled it right. Probably should have spell-checked these before I give them to you. If not, just fix it. It's this that makes it possible for us to know the first one to know God is a faithful God is only because God condescends to us. Now, we're going to see that, but before he clearly expresses this, the author first focuses, just for a moment, in two verses, four and five, on a prophecy concerning the nations. David is speaking prophetically here. Verse four, all the kings of the earth will give thanks to you, O Lord, when they've heard the works of your mouth And they will sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. Wow, that's exciting. David, speaking prophetically, believed this was going to happen. All the kings the world over should and would acknowledge this great and faithful God. It is going to happen. There is coming a time in the future when the kings of the earth are going to hear the words of his mouth. And realize how great he is in his being and in all of his ways, David says, and will praise him or give thanks to him. That day hasn't come yet. It's on its way. We don't know when. It's really in two different kinds of stages. Certainly during the Lord's millennial kingdom, there will be kings in line with wanting to do his will. There will be other kings come on the scene though along the way, but some will give him praise. The Lord controlling his millennial kingdom, the boundaries of the nations redrawn, war, a thing of the past, sin kept down with an iron rod, but even past that in eternity, all the kings of the earth then will bring their splendor, it says in Revelation, bring their splendor into the new Jerusalem. Listen to Revelation 21. Verses 22 and 24, I saw no temple, thinking of eternity, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, new earth. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city, the new Jerusalem, has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God has illumined it. And its, its lamp is the Lamb. I mean, just the presence of God is going to illumine the new Jerusalem. But verse 24, the nations will walk by its light. And the kings of the earth, they'll be kings on the earth, the new earth, and they'll bring their glory into it. All in a united way, praising God and giving Him thanks. Not only that, look at our verse again. It says that they're even going to sing. Kings of the earth, singing the glory of God as they get together. Kings do that now. Rulers get together. I've watched little snippets of the United Nations sort of in operation. Rulers of the world in conference. You know what I've never seen? Seen Them all singing together about the glory of God. I haven't seen that. I don't see them praying or anything. I mean, they meet. Our president meets with various other rulers. They talk about some sort of crisis, some sort of economic problem that we have got to figure out or and at some point, they just end up quarreling and disagreeing. That's the way it is now. But to think about this in the future, they're going to sing. I think Kyle's going to direct them. What a day of blessing that will be when the promised king will rule, and he'll receive the glory he deserves as the highly exalted Lord of the universe. But, though David was confident that that was going to happen in the future, and as amazing as it was, there was something more amazing to him. Something that we do experience now, verse 6. For though the Lord is exalted, and he deserves all the kings doing that, here's what's amazing. He regards the lowly. I mean, the glory of the Lord certainly includes all of his works that he does and his truth, but here we see that his glory is expressed in another way in the experience of his people. His majesty and his greatness is displayed in what we can call condescending grace. And so we read that though he's high, he sees the lowly. You see, we we should be thankful for that. That's who we are. I mean, we're, we're totally lowly. We, we are unable to deliver ourselves from evil and from oppression. I mean, it makes more sense that God would receive worship from the exalted kings, but He's not impressed with them. He regards us. To regard means that God sees. It means more than that. It means that he's always aware of us and always aware of our plight, our problems, and he takes care of us. Listen to how this thought is so beautifully said elsewhere with some very reassuring words. Listen to Isaiah 57 verse 15. For thus says the high and exalted one, who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell in a high and holy place, but also with the contrite and lowly of spirit. Why? In order to the revive the spirit of the lowly. In order to revive the soul of the lowly. In order to give strength to our souls of lowly people. And to revive the heart of the contrite, it says. Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen. Here's another one. Isaiah 66, verse 2. To this one I will look. The great kings of the earth. I, I like being with them. It doesn't say that. To this one I will look. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word, those kings then will be that way. You see, he's not like that toward the proud. Look what it says in verse 6, but the haughty, he knows from afar. That's different. In other words, God's omniscient. He knows everything, right? He knows everybody, everything, every moment of everything. But here it says here that he knows the proud person from a distance, They're not near, either because they refuse to draw near, which they do, or because God himself, looking at it from his side, he rejects those who are proud and haughty because these are the people that think they're self-sufficient. They don't need God. They don't need divine help. And that is very offensive, that pride to this exalted one. But he stoops to graciously... Regard us and provide for us. The almighty God, exalted above all things, yet caring for the lowly. And that, in a word, is total condescension on his part. How thankful we are for that. As we are for number three, thankful for God's purposes. And by purposes, I mean his will, his sovereign will that he's working out in our lives. Here's how David expresses it in verse 7. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch forth your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand will save me. Notice that David acknowledges what the course of his life is going to be. I mean, it's just the way it is the course of my life, I'm going to keep walking in the midst of trouble in situations where I'm again in trouble. He knows that because the life of a believer is not immune from adversities. But even there in the midst of trouble, he's confident of something, that the Lord is going to be there and the Lord is going to do what is right, the Lord is going to do what is just according to His perfect will. And he uses this anthropomorphism, this idea of assigning human characteristics to God, even bodily parts at times, like the eyes of the Lord. He doesn't have real eyes. The Lord is spirit. God is spirit. He has no body. He has no real hand. But it's a way of speaking. He's going to stretch out his hand. Now, the stretching forth of God's hand is a well-known Old Testament idea that's used many times for judgment. Now, you get a real literal picture of that, by the way, in that one scene in in the days of Daniel. Remember the banquet, the great uh, banquet that proud uh, Belshazzar threw, you know? He was mocking the living God and uh, even uh, using all the sacred vessels of the temple for a drunken feast. I mean, it was quite a feast, a lot of revelries but it's it's a horrible scene of debauchery and vulgar mocking of God. And what happened suddenly? Remember that scene that, I mean, there was an outstretched hand of God came in and began to move across the palace wall, writing this message that they couldn't read. It was symbolizing God's judgment on Belt Shatzar for his pride. I'm not saying that David's thinking about that per se or Saw the hand of God that way. He's speaking symbolically. His point is that he was confident that God would, would deliver him one way or the other. Deliverance can come through God's direct intervention, certainly, but it also comes another way by God strengthening the psalmist, he says, or reviving him. You will revive me when you stretch out your hand against my enemies. Either way, God graciously condescends to provide what we need when we need it. So David had nothing to worry about. He saw his situation through the grid of God, what he knew about God. And so he knew that no matter the trouble, there was this there is this all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God who was with him always working, always working everything according to God's own sovereign purposes. So in verse 8, he now looks beyond the immediate scene of his life and his enemies and his problems in a sense to a finished product that God was going to bring about. Verse 8, the Lord, Yahweh, will accomplish what concerns me. You see, we're confident of that. We're confident that God, when we think about it, rightly, we're confident that God's not finished with His plans and purposes in our life yet. He's working. But we know something. We know He is going to finish them, which for all of His people, in the end, is going to result from, with, in complete salvation, eternal salvation, complete deliverance from everything evil and every aspect of sin. What a thought that is. So when I read something like this, the Lord will accomplish what concerns me. That's an Old Testament version of something Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. David must have been doing his quiet time in Philippians that morning, maybe. Don't send emails about that. I was, it was a joke. <laughs> Philippians 1, 6, here's what it says. Paul says, I'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. I mean, that is a great source of confidence, and it's an important reason for us being thankful. We know that God's sovereign purpose for our lives is going to be fulfilled. He's working in us. He's working on us. He's always working in us and on us. He's even using adverse circumstances to to perfect us, to accomplish some wonderful purpose He has in mind in, for us, some strengthening of our soul. And in that sense, as one writer put it, the Lord is, is like the potter who works with the clay. The potter has to use pressure. He has to take the clay and push on it and, and mold it and turn it. And then when He gets it shaped a certain way, He puts it in heat. He puts it in an oven, a furnace. And he knows what he's doing. He knows how hot the furnace needs to be or not be. And he knows how long to leave it in there, but not too long and not too short and all that. And when he's done, there's a finished product and he puts it on, the, on display. That's what David is saying here. That's what God is doing with us, the divine potter. So it is the reality of what God is doing that prompted the psalmist then to repeat In verse 8 here, he repeats a refrain that you also find in Psalm 136. Your loving kindness, O Lord, is everlasting. Our ultimate assurance rests in something about God. Our ultimate assurance rests in the reality of God's faithful love for his people, as we said. We don't have any confidence in ourselves. We are weak, guilty, sinners, saved by grace. And apart from the perseverance of God, the persevering grace of God, we fall away and perish. So our confidence is in Him, the one who loves us, the one who gave Himself for us. And all of that prompts this closing prayer now related to God's sovereign purpose in our lives. David says to God, do it. Accomplish your purposes. He words it like this. Do not forsake the works of your hands. Don't stop molding, God. Don't stop working. You see, His molding of us and His working in us and on us, it's a lifelong process. But the end result, we will be this eternal display of God's grace. So the fact is, each and every one of His purposes for the world in Christ will be accomplished. That is something we should want. That is something we should pray that he does, and it's something we should be consistently thankful for. Well, let me leave you with some important reminders then, prompted by this psalm. And obviously I just I put down what it prompts me to remember. Here's reminder number 1, it's about worship. David is worshiping the Lord, praising the Lord, but worship includes thanksgiving. Never forget that. We think of worship as ascribing to God his attributes and praising him for being the great God he truly is, acknowledging that, praising him for it, and worship does mean all that. It means confessing his attributes, but we're reminded once again that it also includes thanking God for who he is and what he does. Second reminder... The Thanksgiving has an object. It's God. We're not just thankful in a general way like the world. I'm just so thankful. Well, to whom? Well, I'm just just thankful. No, we're we have a lot to be thankful for, and we're thankful to God. So make that intentional this week. In this season, and according to 1 Thessalonians 5, every day. Be intentional this week in thanking God for his faithfulness in your life. Be intentional to thank God that he's a condescending God and he has condescended to you, a lowly person, to save and bless you. And be intentional to thank God this week for his perfect purposes that he is working out in your life. Reminder number three has to do with world missions. It is our duty. That's because of what I was just reminded about as I thought about this prophecy of the kings of the earth. Now, we know that we've come to understand who God is and who Christ is. We know that God has given Jesus a name which is above every name, And we know that Philippians says, yes, everyone in heaven and on earth is going to acknowledge that one day. So we're so grateful that we acknowledge it now. And in a sense, David is saying, even the kings of the earth is going to acknowledge that someday and give praise to God. So it made me think about the fact that we need to keep a a focus on world missions all the time in our hearts. The kings of the earth, other nations, pagan nations. We tend to think of other nations sometimes only as our enemies. They're a mission field. I don't know what opportunity you as an individual might have in that, but in general, it, we know that the Great Commission means we are to make the gospel known to all people, even the kings of the earth, even pagans. So it does point to our responsibility to do one of two things, either as an individual to go into the world as a missionary, we have sent some out of our congregation to do that, or to be involved here in sending others out to the world. And of course, it's not just the other cultures out there either that need to hear the gospel, our own nation does, our own leaders need to hear Christ. What a conundrum we play we face once again with an election in the future. Pray that the few true believers in our various levels of government, the few true believers that are there, would not only faithfully fulfill their job to serve the people, but they would see that opportunity they have as an opportunity to share the gospel with other people in the government, even the ones they don't agree with, to love them as the mission field, World missions is our duty. Reminder number four, God certainly exalts His Word. He exalts it in the same way that He exalts His name. So that makes it pretty serious to doubt His Word. It makes it pretty serious to ignore His Word or to disregard His Word or to do what most people do, to just, well, it was written by people, you know, it's it, you know, for a certain time, but not today. Listen, there's going to be an accounting, an accounting that comes for such persons who disregard God's Word because God exalts it equal with His name. And lastly, reminder number five, it's about His name. We went through His biblical names briefly They help us understand his greatness, but there's perhaps the greatest name that I did not put on that list. Perhaps, from one way of looking at it, the greatest name is the one that Jesus added to the list when he's taught us to call God our Father. What a thought. But here's the thing. Not all people can call him that. Here's what Jesus himself said in John 14, verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father. You can expand that. No one can call him Father but through me. If you've never come to the place of being lowly, To realize that you have no answer for your sin problem, you cannot save yourself, you have nothing to offer God, if you've never come in that lowliness to say that I see Christ as my answer, and I see that Christ, His life and death is something that I must trust in for the forgiveness of my sin if you've never come to trust Him that way so that He's your Lord and your Savior, then you cannot call God your Heavenly Father. But in Christ you can. And our prayer is that you will come to that place. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this psalm that prompts weighty, profound things to be thankful for. We're thankful for every material blessing we have. We're thankful for Our homes and our cars and our clothes and our friends and our church, we're thankful for everything and everything give thanks. But Lord, when we take a step back and we start thinking about who you are and your ways, we are thankful that you are a faithful, good God. We are thankful that you, the exalted one, condescends to save sinners like us. And to regard us and to care for us. And we are thankful that everything you do is perfect and wise and just. And that's what we want. We want your purposes in our lives. Help us to be intentional about those thoughts this week. And I pray for anyone here who needs to come to trust in Christ. That they would humble themselves today. And ask him to save them. In his name we pray. Amen.